Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we are in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Well, Calvary West, good morning and welcome and a very happy first Sunday of Advent to you. Today is the first official Sunday in this season leading up to Christmas where Christians all over the world are, like Rebecca said, remembering and celebrating the same exact thing. We're looking back and we're remembering Jesus's first advent, his first arrival into the world, and we're celebrating the work that God accomplished through Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And of course, we know we're also looking forward to the next advent, the next arrival of Jesus, where he fully and finally restores all things to God the Father through himself. And so if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm really glad that you're here to remember, to celebrate the good news that we're talking about and singing about and praying about this morning is good news that God intends for you today. And I hope that you hear it. I hope that you can receive it this morning. If you're joining us online this morning, I want to say hello to you as well. I know we've got a lot of people sick with the crud and the white lung pneumonia or whatever. I don't know. Somebody sent me a tweet and I was like, again, I don't want to know. Okay. But if you're at home sick, you got sick kids. We love you. We miss you. And we hope to see you soon. If you're a guest joining online, we'd love to meet you in person sometime soon. For all of our guests, we've got a gift for you uh, this morning. You can grab it if you didn't get it on the way in, on the way out. We'd love to connect and just say hello. And we've got something that'll help you in this Advent season as well. So kids, if you're in kindergarten, first or second grade, you can head on back to Kids Connect. Uh, that's a time, Kids Connect is a time for our kindergarten, first and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. Your kids are welcome to go. And as always, your kids are welcome to stay in here uh, in the service with you as well. For those of us in the room, we're going to be back in our Advent series. Last week we talked about hope. This week we're looking at peace. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 has, I think, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Certainly the most famous passage of the Christmas season. And I think it's famous for a couple of reasons. You know, first of all, because it's this announcement of the birth of Jesus. And you've got this really... Um, almost bizarre interaction, incredible at least interaction between shepherds who are just doing their thing out in the fields at night, and then God who sends these messengers from heaven, angels from heaven, with a message for these shepherds. And if you can imagine just your you know, normal work routine being interrupted by a heavenly host of angels arriving to you with this pronouncement, I think we can all put ourselves in their feet and go like, man, that would be really weird. And so there's that dynamic. But really, I think that this is pretty famous of a passage because this is the passage that Linus quotes to Charlie Brown when Charlie Brown is just dejected that everything has gone wrong at Christmas. And if you've seen uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, maybe you've seen it every year since 1965. I didn't realize as we were reading and getting ready this week that it's that old. Not that you're old if you've seen it every year at all, but it is that old. It started in 1965. It aired for the first time. It's aired every year since then. And uh, Charlie Brown, he's just distraught. He's like, I guess you were right, Linus. I guess you're right. I shouldn't have picked this tree. Everything's gone wrong. And I don't even really know what Christmas is all about. And then he goes, you remember what he says? Like, isn't there anybody who can tell us what Christmas is all about? And you remember what Linus does? He's like, sure, Charlie Brown. He walks to the center. He's like, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he goes, lights, please. And then we hear these words. Let's listen. 
Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's it. And we couldn't uh, play that because Apple Plus owns it now and they don't like to share, but um, apparently it's less illegal to just play the audio. So that's what we did. Now, you notice as you listen to that, I don't know how all that works. I'm not a lawyer, but um, you notice as you listen to that, like that's not probably the translation of the Bible that you have. And that's because that's the King James version of the Bible that Linus is reciting to Charlie Brown. And so many of us, right, when we hear that over and over again every year at Christmas, that's how we remember those verses. That's how we think about those verses, especially that last line in the King James, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Many of us memorized those verses that way in the King James, or even if later on we weren't reading the King James, we still remember it in that way because of the influence of listening to Linus and Charlie Brown every year at Christmas. There's only one problem uh, with that, and I want you to look at your version of the Bible now, whichever one you read. I want you to look at your version. If you have the NIV like I do, which you should, uh, this is what you'll read. <clears throat> Excuse me, that was a, an objective statement of fact, not a personal thing, but uh, this is what you're reading in the NIV. Glory to God in the highest. If you've got the new NIV, it's in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, that's not just talking about males. It's men like humanity. So when you read that, know that. If you've got an ESV, this is what Pastor Will preaches from. Glory to God in the highest and on, our, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you've got a CSB, one of the newer translations, Christian Standard Bible, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And if you're reading the NLT, it's Mary's favorite uh, as well. Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now, why are we reading all these different versions talking about what might seem like very slight differences uh, between them? It's good to remember every translation is an interpretation. That's something that Dr. Black taught us in New Testament Greek. Every translation is an interpretation. So it's good sometimes just to stack some up beside each other and go, well, what are the differences in how these are translated and therefore interpreted? How are the scholars reading these different things? Uh, we can't read Greek and Hebrew. Maybe you can, I can't. And so we're relying on the, the work of others to translate that into modern English for us. So what are the translations saying? When we compare and contrast different versions, sometimes we see slightly different nuances on what the text is saying. And I think there's actually a, not a slightly different nuance here. I think there's a big difference here. When we compare an old, old translation, the King James, 
and stack that up against modern translations. I read four of them, but really if you get any modern translation, it's going to say basically what the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, and the NLT all say. And I don't know if you noticed that when we read, but the modern translations all limit the scope of God's peace. They limit, they narrow the scope of God's peace. It's peace for those with whom God is pleased or those who God favors. It's a limited uh, uh, scope for that. But in the King James, the peace seems to be for the whole earth, right? Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace. The whole earth. And, and goodwill towards men. The scope of that peace is much wider. And the nature of that peace, I think, sounds to us much more generic. Goodwill towards men. Treat people you know, nicely, especially now in the holiday season. We get the sense of that when we read it or hear Linus recite it, that it's a, a sort of a feeling of like positivity towards others. Goodwill towards men. If we were going to say the King James maybe in a modern way, we might say like, and on earth, peace and good vibes towards all. You've seen those stickers on the back of people's cars, right? Like good vibes, happy vibes. And that definitely fits the sentiment of the season, right? We say, hey, Christmas, it's the most wonderful time of the year where everything is merry and bright. We want to have that feeling at Christmas time for sure, but you have to step back and wonder, right? Is that what Jesus came into the world to accomplish? Good vibes towards all. Holiday merriment and festivities, a kind of a sentimentalized feeling that we get in the holiday season, is that what Jesus came to accomplish? I think if that is what he came to accomplish, we'd have to stack that up against the reality that you and I live in every day and say, man, if that's what Jesus was going for, he really failed in his mission, didn't he? If that's what Jesus came to bring to the earth, I'm not seeing that much in the real world. Now, we, we talk about it at Christmas, and you see it in advertisements, and you hear it in songs, but at the same exact time, you and I are living in a world that is rife with conflict, right? Conflict between nations. We talked about that a little bit last week, between cultures, even within the same nation, people who hold different values and see the world in different ways and think different things are important and believe that human flourishing comes in different ways. And there are conflict with each other, conflict within workplaces where, you know, whose idea, whose influence, whose Whose moxie is going to win the day in the workplace? Conflict at school for you students with your friends, right? When you feel like somebody's talking about you behind your back or has done you wrong in some way. And there's a conflict and jealousy and anger, hatred maybe, bitterness in families even. And so we say, man, most wonderful time of the year. We've got all these sentimental feelings that come up at Christmas. And yet, and yet... That's not often our experience. Sometimes at Christmas, we experience the most conflict because we're around the people that we know the best the most. And it's easiest to get into conflict with those people. Maybe you've noticed that before. It's the easiest to be frustrated with the people who are closest to you. And we know that in like a, a common knowledge sort of a way, right? Like there's all this pressure at Christmas for things to be just right and merry and bright and festive and happy and sentimental and good. And yet... Man, with all those extra activities and family gatherings and end-of-the-year work and events and school and the kids and parties and all of that, often leads us away from peace and towards more conflict. Pop culture gets that. 
That's why every single Hallmark movie has the same plot, right? Whether she's in, you know, HR in the big city or she's running her own PR firm or she's got a cute bakery, you know, like whatever it is, right? What does she experience five minutes into the movie? Heartbreak and disappointment, conflict with someone that sparks the rest of the story. And then what does he do, right? Whether he's a firefighter or a policeman or, or a farmer out in the woods, right? What does he do? He comes and brings peace to her life. You're laughing because you know it's true. I just summed up the whole lineup, right? All 60 days of Christmas or whatever it is at this point. Okay, that's all of them. You don't have to watch anymore, guys. You're welcome. So... That's the dynamic that makes Home Alone such a great movie, right? What are the McAllisters getting ready for? They're getting ready for this, you know, ideal family trip overseas to Paris to visit, to visit their relatives who they don't get to see often. And man, they're, oh, what a great trip it's going to be, you know? And, and even before they leave, right, even before they leave Kevin, you've got all this conflict in the home. It's Kevin and Buzz, you know, at the, the very beginning. And then it's Kevin and Uncle Frank at the table. He's like, look what you did, you little jerk. You know, and, and you got that. And then it's Kevin and his parents when they send him up to sleep on the hide-a-bed with Fuller. And he's like, and it's Kevin and Fuller, right? You know about Fuller. He wets the bed. I don't want to sleep with Fuller. And so then Kevin is just totally isolated on his own because of all of this escalating conflict. It's before they even leave. Right? And here's the thing, this is a reality that we often try to ignore at Christmas when we know it's supposed to be the, the happiest time of the year. So we try to ignore all of this conflict, we wish it away, but we can't ever quite escape it, can we? That conflict is still around, and that's because our default natural setting as humans is conflict and not peace. Okay, what comes most natural to us as human beings is not peace, it is conflict. we got these massive areas of conflict in our lives. Think about conflict with the natural world, right? Why is it so hard to subdue creation? Uh, If you've got a garden or you've tried to clear land, right? It can be incredibly frustrating. We spent, I don't even know how many hours and how much money trying to get a yard for like the first three-ish years that we lived in our house before we were finally like, you know what, forget it. It's not going to happen. We're in conflict with nature, and we're going to give this one to nature. Okay, and so our field looks green when the weeds are green, and it looks brown when the weeds are brown. It is not a great yard. But we're in conflict, right? It's not easy to live in the natural world. You think about death and disease, natural disasters. All of these are reminders that we are in conflict with nature. You think about conflict with others, with other people, right? Whether that's your spouse or your kids, Students, whether it's a friend at school or a teacher that you're in conflict with, if you're out in the workplace and it's somebody that you're not getting along with and you don't jive with, right? We have all our extended family, all kinds of conflict with others. And then we're in conflict with ourselves as well. We're going to talk about that a little bit at the end. But all three of those big areas of conflict stem from the same root conflict, which is our conflict with God. So our conflict with God is the source of all of that other conflict with nature, with others, and with ourselves. And if you think about what it means to be in conflict with someone, it means that you and that person, or with something, nature, you and that thing, at least in the moment of conflict, that you are enemies 
right? That you're on opposite sides. You see things in different ways. You got different perspectives, different goals that you want to see accomplished. And so in that moment, at least, and, and many of our conflicts are much bigger than that, but in that moment, at least, you are enemies, If you're married, you think about how this happens in marriage, right? Where something so small, something so insignificant can become this thing where you are just at each other's throats. And your first thought is not like, I want to love and serve my spouse, right? It's I want to crush them and for them to know that I was right about this all along, right? Anybody ever been there? I've never been there, but I've counseled with people, right, who have. So, you know, I get it. I, I get it. So, I mean, it, that conflict, it's, man, it, you're enemies in those moments. Enemy with nature, right? Where you're fighting to subdue it. Enemies with God. Enemies even with ourselves and with others. And, and that sounds bad. I don't want to think of myself as, as other people's enemy. You probably don't either. But that's the reality, right? When we're in these conflicts, is that we are enemies with the person or the thing that we're in conflict with. And that's why that, like, generic, sentimental, Norman Rockwell, Hallmark type of peace, the goodwill, good vibes towards all, it doesn't work, right? It's not strong enough to overcome what divides us. Certainly not for the long run. It's certainly not enough to end conflict and turn enemies into friends. And you think about that, that's our greatest need as humans, right? Is for the conflict to cease and for us to to be able to experience peace. If we live as enemies, right, and conflict is our default natural state, if that continues on for your whole life, then you die as an enemy too. You die as an enemy of God. You may have left a wake of enemies throughout your life. And I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, been part of a funeral where no one will stand up right, to, to speak on behalf of the person who's died. It's not, it's not, it's different than a funeral where people don't feel comfortable. You know, and I've stood up and I've read statements from families before and things like that where they had things to say, but they didn't feel comfortable saying them. I'm talking about where no one will stand up because there's nothing good to say, right? That person lived as an enemy. They made enemies. Conflict was all they knew. And in the end, they died as an enemy of everyone. And I don't know about you, but man, that just seems miserable it seems miserable to live like that to die like that thankfully the life doesn't have to be that way and it doesn't have to end that way either and that's because when Jesus arrived that first Christmas right he didn't come to bring generic peace he didn't come to bring good vibes to the whole world that's not what Jesus came to accomplish the peace that Jesus brings means two things it means the end of hostility between conflicted parties but it also means the beginning of wholeness. That's the idea of peace in the Bible. It's the end of hostility and it's the beginning of wholeness. So we're going to think about that first part first, the end of hostility. And even as I say that, I realize like that's not the way that we want to think about ourselves. I'm hostile towards others. Nobody wants to imagine themselves in that way, right? The, the problems in my life, or at least some of them are caused by my hostility towards others. And I don't really want to think about other people as like hostile towards me. I want to kind of assume the best and avoid conflict at all costs. But I want you to think back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 to see that this is the reality for us. And I was thinking about that this this week. I'm like, we go back here a lot to Genesis 2 and 3. And that's because so much of what we experience as humans starts right there in the garden. 
right? It starts right there in the garden. In Genesis 2, man, it's all good. You think about the relationship between God and people. Man, in the garden, in Genesis 2, it's all good, right? Think about the relationship between people and people in the garden, and it's all good. God and his people, man, they're friends in the garden. They're walking together. They're talking together. They're collaborating on the work that is to be done of filling the earth and subduing. They're, they're, they are in it together, and it is just right. There's a relational depth of intimacy there that's like impossible for us to imagine. They've got a closeness and a depth that extends out to all the areas of their life, right? And it's just good between God and his people, their friends. And the same thing is true of the humans who are there in the garden. The scripture says that they are united together. They've got a common identity as God's people. They've got a common identity as family together. They've got a common purpose in their work even. They're united. They're friends. They're on the same page. They're pulling in the same direction. And then you move from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3 and everything changes. And right, all the things that we would take as clear markers of friendship that are present in Genesis 2 are just missing in Genesis 3. All the things that you look at and say, that's a good relationship. That's healthy. It's right. It's good in Genesis 2. Man, when you turn the page to Genesis 3, it's all gone. Where before... God and the people were walking together. Now the people are hiding from God, right? They're, they're, they're doing everything they can to get away from God. Where before in Genesis 2, they're talking together. They've got this just ongoing conversation about what's to be done in the garden and the work that they're doing and all that. Now they're silent. It's not, that they, it's not just that they're not talking to God. They don't want to be noticed by God at all. And so they're silent as they hide. And it's God who has to speak first to come and find them. You think about the fact that they were collaborating together on what was to be done. Well, now the people are collaborating with someone else entirely. It's not God anymore. It's someone else. And this other person has a different agenda for them. They don't realize it. This other person, Satan, he does not want their good like God did. He wants their destruction. They just haven't realized it yet when they start to collaborate with him at the beginning of Genesis 3. The same thing is true of the people with each other, right? They, they, they were united. They were on the same page. They did have this intimacy between each other. And now, man, you get to Genesis 3 and it's suspicion. It's blame shifting. It's accusing, right? And, and you just see this relational brokenness where before they were one, that's been fractured. And now they even are against each other. And even as we turn away from Scripture, from Genesis 2 and 3, right, we look at our own lives, and we go, man, it's the exact same for us, right? That we run and we hide from God. We don't want to be known by Him. We don't want to be seen by Him. We don't want to have conversation with Him, right? How many of us have this just ongoing, constant conversation with God? Not many of us. Most of us, man, it's an effort to pray. We have to force ourselves into it. We've got to discipline ourselves. That's why they're called spiritual disciplines. It doesn't come naturally to us anymore to live in a relationship with God. We hide. We, we pull away. We don't want. We, you know, we want to align ourselves now with people who will tell us what we already want to hear is, is kind of the reality. Where before we're listening to God or, or they were in Genesis 2 and they're getting all their wisdom, all their knowledge, all their inspiration, all the influence is coming from God to them. Think about all the different places we look for that now. 
all the different people we turn to for that, all the different social media apps and influencers and sources of wisdom out there away from God, because we know at the end of the day, man, I can find what I already know I want to hear. I may not get that from God, but I can find that somewhere else. And so we'll go other places. Same thing is true in our interpersonal relationships, right? We've got that same suspicion, that same blaming, that same accusing that Adam and Eve had in the garden. We have in our relationships, especially as conflict arises, right? If you've ever heard someone say, well, so-and-so said this, and so I had to respond like that, right? It's really obvious with kids. You know, why did you hit him? Well, because he took my toy. Not because I was angry, not because I lack self-control, right? Because he took my toy. And so we've got all of that brokenness relationally in our human relationships as well. So even if we don't like to think of ourselves as like embroiled in all this conflict all the time, because you and I do a pretty good job of masking some of that and pretending that things are okay. Sometimes you can't ignore it though, and the conflicts are huge. And there's people you may see at Christmas this year that you're not going to talk to. There's parties that you're not going to go to. There's people you're not going to send a Christmas card to because there's an ongoing conflict. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's just bubbling below the surface. It's that tension that won't go away. It's that frustration that lingers. It's that bitterness that you have towards that person or that situation. It's that envy or hatred or, or jealousy or rage, right, that you just can't get rid of. How can Jesus bring a peace that means the end of that kind of hostility? I want you to turn to Romans 5 with me. Turn over to Romans 5 because Paul's going to tell us exactly how it happens. It's Romans chapter 5. Chapter five. We're going to read like verses 1 and 2. And then we'll come back and read a little bit more. So Romans chapter 5, how does Jesus bring peace? Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, one more time, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. How can Jesus bring a peace that ends the hostility, especially between us and God? Well, Paul says it's through justification. Now, that's not a word that we use all the time. So let's break it down a little bit. What is justification? What's the gist of it? There's a lot that could be said, but justification, four parts to this. It's an act of God. Justification is an act of God. It's because of Jesus. He enables it. It's received by us through faith, received by faith, and then it proves itself over time. So to think about that just a little bit more, justification is an act of God where the guilty, guilty sinners are judged accurately as being guilty and then declared innocent. Now, that's not a way that you and I like to think about ourselves either. Guilty sinners. That's not like, hi, I'm Ryan. I'm a guilty sinner. Nice to meet you. We don't do that, right? And we don't like to think like that. And if you're outside of the church, like that's certainly not a part of the cultural language in the culture in which we live. But that is the, that is the spiritual reality. That's how, might not be how we see ourselves, might not be how we see each other, but it's how God sees us accurately. So sin is just that rebellion against God. It's saying no to God and yes to myself, right? And so every time I say yes to myself, I'm confirming that I am a rebel in rebellion against God. 
And so justification is, is the moment where God says, yes, that's true. You have rebelled against me. You are guilty of treason and you stand condemned. But I find you innocent. I find you innocent. And so I welcome you into my family. Now, we say the next part of that, right? It's because of Jesus. That only happens for us because Jesus stands in our place at the cross. We receive that justification, that right standing, innocent, not guilty. We receive that by faith the moment that we trust Jesus for the very first time. Justification is not something that you have to keep going back to get more of. Justification is a one-time verdict that stands for all time. Innocent, not guilty. We receive that the moment we trust Jesus to save us for the very first time. Here's how it happens. God, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm guilty. I hate to think of myself that way. I've never thought of it before, but now I realize it's true. I see, though, that Jesus stood in my place at the cross and that through him, I can do something I never could have done on my own, which is come back to you. And so I'm trusting Jesus to take me back home to you. And then justification proves itself or it works itself out over time with a faith that produces good works. As God works in us, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He begins to produce good spiritual fruit in us. So what Paul's telling us is that enemies don't just magically make peace, right? If you're over here and God's over here, peace doesn't just happen because we wish people a Merry Christmas, because we have goodwill towards others, because good vibes are in the air, right? Peace doesn't just happen. Someone has to make peace. And if you've ever been in conflict before, you understand that, right? Because conflict, like all sin, carries with it a cost. There is a payment that has to be made. And if it's between you and another person, and you initiated the conflict, if the other person offers to forgive you, what they're saying is, I will pay the debt that you owe, right? I will take on myself the pain of this sin, say it's between you and your spouse, Right, So you sin against your spouse in some way, and then you come back to them and you say, hey, will you forgive me? And you, you know, you've tried to do this right without asking for forgiveness probably, and what happens? It just simmers. Right? It just simmers. It just continues on. You might not talk about it. You might not want to think about it. You might think you've got it neatly swept under the rug, right? but what pops up sometime in the future is, oh, you remember when you said that? Oh, you remember when you did that? Don't think I forgot about that. Why? Because it's never been dealt with. It's never been handled. Peace was not made afterwards. So you notice, and man, if any kind of conflict, it's not just in marriage. Any kind of conflict, this is true. Peace has to be made. The person who caused the pain with their sin, right, then goes and asks for forgiveness. Will you please forgive me? And the person who offers forgiveness is saying, I will take the hurt and the pain of your sin. I will keep it to myself. I'll deal with it between God rather than putting it back on you in revenge. That's what forgiveness is. And so for Jesus to make peace with us, what God is doing is he is putting all of the cost, not on us of our sin and rebellion, but on Jesus. All of the cost of our sin and rebellion goes to Jesus. And we in turn receive what we do not deserve, which is forgiveness. It's reconciliation, and it is peace. Jesus takes what we deserve. We receive what He deserves, which is the blessing of obedience. It's friendship with God. That's what Jesus does when He stands in our place 
at the cross. He removes the barrier that was keeping us apart. And so now we can be friends again. Now hostilities can cease. Now peace can be experienced. That's what God does. It's work that only He can do. We cannot do that on our own. Right? And here's why. Because once you say yes to yourself, you only ever want to say yes to yourself. Have you noticed that? Once you say yes to your desires and you put them over what God has said is good or what you know might be good for someone else, and is it enough to just do that once? No, you want more and more and more of it. That's why none of us ever would turn back to God on our own. Like, man, I can get everything I've ever wanted over here. Well, why would I ever go back to God? We wouldn't. C.S. Lewis says hell is like getting off at a train station and there's all these people around you and you just keep going further and further and further into the woods until you can't even see the light from other people's houses. Because when you're that isolated, you get to say yes to yourself all the time and no one can ever put demands on you ever again, right? So that conflict leads to isolation. It's me saying yes to myself. I would never go back to the point where people can put demands on me, where God can tell me what to do and not do. No thanks, this feels much better. We would never do it on our own, and so God has to do it for us. And that's what he does through Jesus. That's what Paul's explaining next. Look at verses six through eight. You see, at just the right time, same thing he said to the Galatians, in the fullness of time, when we were still powerless, powerless to come back to him, no way at all for us to get back to God on our own, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Paul's like, sure, maybe there's a scenario, right, where if you're a good enough person, someone will say, hey, you keep doing your thing and and I'll die in your place. But he's like, we're not good people, right? We aren't good people. And so verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's you and I who are in conflict with God, right? It wasn't Jesus who was in conflict with God. It wasn't Jesus who needed to have this peace made. He and the Father are one. Man, there's nothing between them. It's all between us and God. But Jesus steps in between the two enemies and He does the hard work of bringing them back together so that they can become friends. And it's that peace with God Right? bought by Jesus, brought to us by Jesus, that then enables us to experience peace in all the other areas of our life, with nature, with others, and with ourselves. Now here's the reality, right? Vertical peace with God between us and Him always comes before horizontal peace with others. And that's why, listen, Calvary West, that's why so many of us experience just entrenched conflict with others. That, that is never solved. Right? It's because we're not experiencing peace with God. And so we want maybe peace with others. We wish for peace with others. We wish our marriages were different. We wish it was different between us and our kids or us and our classmates or us and our teammates or us and the people we work with. We wish it was different, but it's never different because we're wishing for something horizontally that we're not experiencing vertically with God and so it's impossible to find. Peace with God always precedes peace with others. Tim Keller said it like this in his book, Hidden Christmas. He said, Christmas means that through the grace of God in the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. 
And the more people embrace the gospel and do that, the more people are at peace with God. He's saying the more, like the more number of people who are at peace with God and the more us who have embraced the gospel experience our peace with God, the more we will go out and make peace with others. He says the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, means the increase of peace. What did Isaiah say last week? Of his government and of his peace, right? There will be an increase and there will be no end. It means the increase of peace both with God and between people across the face of the whole world. So we said biblical peace, right? It means the end of hostility between us and God, between us and others, but it also means the beginning of wholeness. And I want us to kind of meditate for a few minutes on that, the beginning of wholeness. I want you to think about the reason that you experience conflict in the first place. What's the reason for that? We often like to, to um, find the why of our conflict out there rather than in here. Right? We love to find the reason for our conflict, the why of our conflict out there and not in here. It's a comforting way to, to frame things to ourselves. Right? Well, why am I in conflict with nature? Well, you know, if poison ivy wasn't so poison, I wouldn't be in conflict with it, would I? Right? If thorns weren't so thorny, I wouldn't mind them in my yard. Right? It's nature's fault. Why am I in conflict with others? Well, because so-and-so made me mad. Because so-and-so is so bad at their job. Because so-and-so isn't a good enough spouse. Because so-and-so doesn't do what I ask when I ask. Because so-and-so disappointed me or lied to me or gossiped about me or stabbed me in the back or disappointed me. Right? It's them. It's not me. Why am I in conflict with God? Well, maybe I wouldn't be if he would let me have a little bit more fun. Right? Maybe if he wasn't so serious about everything that makes me happy, maybe if he wasn't such a downer, right, then I wouldn't have to be in conflict with him all the time. I wouldn't be running away from him. I wouldn't be looking for ways out of obligation with him. And then you go, well, if I'm in conflict with myself, man, who do I blame for that? Right? We love to look out there for the reason for our conflict until we think about the conflict that we experience in here. And you and I have all had this experience where all the circumstances, all the details of our lives are good or they're fine. They're good enough. I'm not in any heated battles with other people. Maybe things are going really well at work. Maybe things are great with my family. And yet there's still that voice inside right, that just gnaws at you and just says, like, well, you're still not good enough. Everybody can tell. If you, were, if you were better, maybe things are fine, but if you were better, things would be better. All right, what a failure. Maybe things are fine now, but they weren't before, and that was all your fault too. We have this voice, right, that, that even when things out there are fine, things in here often aren't. Who can we blame for that? That's where kind of the blame shifting runs into a wall and falls apart. I realize, man, there's something broken in me. There's some division in me. Irrespective of everything else that's going on in the world, irrespective of my marriage, irrespective of my kids, irrespective of my work, of the wider culture, the wider world, there's still something broken in here that I've got to figure out. James talks about this. In uh, James chapter 4, he's asking the question, like, what causes conflict? 
That's a pretty simple question. And again, most of us would like to answer it with something out there. And this is what James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What causes conflict? What makes you an enemy of someone or something? Doesn't that come from your desires that battle within you? And I've got these desires that are at war in here at the level of my heart and soul that have nothing to do with the wider world. Right? They've got, I can't place that blame anywhere else because it's all in here. How could we ever hope to experience a lasting peace Right, If there's that division, there's that conflict, there's that war raging, even in here. My heart goes wherever I go, so how can I ever experience peace and wholeness? James says something interesting a few verses later. He's quoting the Old Testament. You see it in verse 6. He says, this is why the Scripture says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, why would he say that in response to this war within, right? This division, even among my my own desires, where one day I want this and the next day I want that. And man, sometimes those aren't the same thing at all. And so I'm all over the place. That's leading me into conflict with others. I don't get what I want. I mean, if there's one thing I love, it's getting what I want when I want it, right? If there's one thing I hate, it's not getting what I want when I want it. And I'd like to think I'm more sophisticated than that, but I'm really not. And maybe you're not either, right? And you realize, man, there is just this war within. James acknowledges that, and then his solution is to quote Psalms, God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. I think this is why. When Paul is writing about what Jesus came to do in the incarnation, right? what we're celebrating now in Advent, His first arrival, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says this, that when Jesus came to the earth, He made Himself nothing. He made Himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant And being found in human appearance in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death. And then it's like, that's not enough. And he goes, even death on a cross. And here's what Paul's telling us. Jesus could not have gotten any lower. He humbled himself the most that he could be humbled. God on high, right? Who deserved everything that God deserves. Worship and praise and glory and fame. And Paul says he didn't, he didn't consider that something to be held on to. <clears throat> he didn't feel like he had to have that. He gave it all up. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could make peace between God and man. So that he could make peace between God and man. And if humility is the way of Jesus, then it makes sense that it would be the way for his followers too. If humility is the way of Jesus, then it makes sense. It would be our way to peace too. And that's why I said I want us to take a couple of minutes and meditate because that's a tough pill to swallow. Right? That's a tough pill to swallow. When you build your, your worldview when it comes to conflict and peace, 
where they're wrong and I'm right. They're the problem and I'm the victim. It would be better if they were better, but it's not. It's worse because they're bad. Right? When you build that into your mind, when you build that into your mentality, it's almost impossible to look within and go, actually, the problem starts here. Humility is a tough pill to swallow. Humility means that I can no longer point the finger at, at you for the conflict we may have, at Meredith for the conflict we may have, at my kids for the conflict that we may have, right? At my coworkers, at my friends, at my extended family. Whatever my part in that conflict is, if I'm humble about it, I've got to own that part. Now, I can't own your part in the conflict. You've got to do that, but I can own mine, but only through humility. Humility, right, means that we take responsibility for the way that our desires, that this battle that's raging within, that it has led me away from God and into conflict with other people. I've got to take responsibility for that. Humility means, man, and this is tough, giving up on the idea of winning when it comes to conflict and embracing a different goal instead, which is wholeness. Embracing a different goal instead, the way out of hostility and towards that wholeness, that peace, that shalom that the Bible promises is towards humility. When Jesus humbled himself, ironically, he was giving up on winning the battle between Jerusalem and Rome. He gave up on winning that by going to the cross. And it was only in humbling himself and giving up on winning that he could experience the victory that God intended for him to experience. And man, if it was true for him, it's going to be true for us as well. Right? The way to peace is not through winning. It's through humility. And in humility, we experience Jesus and his victory on our behalf. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to just pray for a few minutes for humility and for wholeness. This may be the first time that you've ever thought about it like this. This may be the first time that you've ever asked God to deal with the, the desires that are battling within you. And that's fine. God's grace is for you. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you ask God for humility this morning, you will receive it. And so let's take a few minutes. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.